0: This is Labor Wave Radio.
1: Ma chère mademoiselle, it is with deepest pride and greatest pleasure that we welcome you tonight. And now, we invite you to relax, let pull up a chair, as the dining room proudly presents your dinner. B.O. Oh guest be our guest put our service to the test tie your napkin round your neck sherry and we provide the rest soup to jewel hot (coughs) order why we only live to serve labor
0: wave radio is an independent podcast and it's sustained by our subscribers on patreon so if you enjoy the show please support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash labor wave Based on your membership tier, you'll receive gifts, including stickers, illustrated zines, and original-made Labor Wave t-shirts. If you can't afford to support the show in monetary ways, you can still support us by following us on our social media and liking and subscribing to us on SoundCloud. Also, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as that helps us reach new listeners. Labor Wave Radio puts out a new episode every two weeks based on work and labor organizing from an anti-capitalist perspective. And listeners are invited to write us comments, questions, even pitch ideas for upcoming episodes at laborwavenews at gmail.com, particularly if there's a fictional workplace organizing campaign that you want to pitch. I want to hear from you. This episode that you're about to hear emerged when listener Graham Kovich reached out and pitched the idea of organizing the servants in Beauty and the Beast. So again, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your questions, comments, your organizing campaign ideas at laborwavenews at gmail.com. Graham Kovich, welcome to Labor Wave Radio.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So I'm really excited to get into this. I'm looking forward to hearing what we're going to come up with in this fictional campaign, but we recently did an episode where me and my guest were two new workers at the office, the fictional workplace of the office, and we ran a workplace campaign there and talked about how to identify leaders and organize against the boss. I then got a proposal from you to think about the same type of scenario, fictional workplace world, but instead of the office talk about beauty and the beast and the condition of the servants and their, their Lord, the beast, right? Their boss. So very excited. I never would have thought of this world to organize, but how about you start us off by just telling, you know, our listeners, I'm sure people are familiar, but what what are the working conditions like in this, uh, you know, castle in a faraway land?
1: Oh, I mean, they're completely abysmal. I mean, I think maybe at first glance people might think that, oh, well, the the characters they're all living in this big castle, and you know it must be nice and cushy. But you've got the Mrs. Potts and her children who have to sleep in a cupboard, and of course her her children Chip is the the main character of her ilk. He's doing child labor in the castle, and you know they they have to live and work in these really dark, dank conditions, and You know, of course, they they serve under the beast, who is this gigantic creature. He, you know, he used to be a prince who was very uh, abusive and manipulative. And so now on top of that, he's been transformed into this beast and he's really hot headed and he yells all the time and and breaks things and and gets really short. So there's there's a lot going on. You know, this is probably pre-industrialism or right on the edge, too. So, you know, I'm not sure what they're. Compensation is like, but I would imagine it's probably just in exchange for for living in the castle.
0: How did you come up with this as the world that you wanted to organize? Like, what resonated with you and your own personal experience when you watched Beauty and the Beast uh, and thought about the condition of the servants in the castle?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't come right away, but I love listening to the the show, and I love those like hypothetical situations, you know, where you're like, oh, what if we were union organizers at office or whatever that was one of the premises and so i was like oh i I would love to do something like that i'm like well i've I've worked in restaurants and food and hospitality you know my whole life that's that's all i've really done so that would probably be the the most familiar thing for me to talk about so i'm like well there's cheers which takes place at a bar but i haven't really seen cheers in a long time and so i'd have to do a lot of like probably a lot more catching up on that I was like, well, there was a, a cafe on friends, but I think that just had one employee and I don't really want to talk about friends. And <laughs> I just, I, I was kind of doing like a word association thing in my, in my mind. And I was like, beer, food, guests. And then like, all of a sudden I was a VR guest. I was like, oh, the the people in, in Beauty and the Beast, they're all like servants and servers and hospitality workers. Like it's, it's kind of like a hotel almost. So... <laughs> and then I, I, I thought about it a little more and teased it out, and I was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna email Labor to and see what what they think." And here we are.
0: As a hospitality worker, when you watch Beauty and the Beast, like how much of it feels familiar to you? Like the conditions that they are experiencing, the treatment by the Beast, like how much does that map on to, you know real life?
1: I think a lot. I mean, first of all, they're they're in this predicament because at the beginning of the story, there's an elderly woman who who comes. The door, and you know she's she's just looking for like a little bit of help, and you know of course the the beast mocks and ridicules her, you know, and then has the the spell put on him, and he spends the whole rest of the story being like, oh poor me, poor me, where it's like you brought this on yourself. So yeah, so I mean you have like the self loathing boss, owner, manager archetype. The line too, where or, or the part in the uh, the be our guest song where like where Lumiere says we only live to serve, and you know we're like. You know, we're really, really passionate about what we do. I think, like, you see that too, where you have people who, who like really internalize their roles as, as servers and cooks and stuff like that. And, but then, of course, too, yeah, you have like the, the whole thing where, where people like work off the clock, they put up with a lot of abuse, you know, the, the whole Stockholm syndrome aspect of it.
0: Absolutely. Like I was saying before we started recording, I, I've worked in restaurants for 16 years. That was just my, my life. I thought it was going to be my, my life no shame in it but i do have a lot of experience with those co-workers like that that had like i guess you would say internalized you know their conditions and figured out like maybe their own narratives on making them feel better about mm-hmm. the circumstances for them i remember one guy in particular i just I couldn't tolerate you know listening to him talk about how much he loved talking to wait uh, to customers <laughs> You know, we were both waiting tables and he would just like, we got drunk one night. I think I actually have a work party and he starts telling me about how much he just loves his job because he loves to talk to people and he was so curious about people. And yeah. I was like, Steve, you fucking, are just <laughs> you're just giving these people food. You're talking about the goddamn weather. Like you are, like you are not making any connections with these people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was kind of messy. But anyway, all that to say. I think you see all of this actually very like almost realistically captured in this story. Another thing that you brought up in our correspondence that I think is really interesting and I want to just flesh out more about Beauty and the Beast particularly was this circumstance of alienation because the beast as a capitalist would be, you know, as a as a lord I guess in this particular circumstance is incredibly dependent and reliant upon the servant class not only for just the reproduction of his life, but also literally to transform him into a human being again. Like he needs them to humanize him. But at the same time, they are so bound to him as a boss, as their master, that they have been literally transformed into inanimate objects, into like the dressers and candlesticks and teacups and all that. So I, I don't know. I just think it's a really interesting kind of, analogy to look at what what do you think about this depiction of alienation and beauty and the
1: beast yeah yeah absolutely i mean there was a meme of you know like a, a Karl marx quote about alienation but you know it talks about how like the the worker through like alienation devolves into like the form of a commodity basically you know and it's like an image of like a person in a banana suit at a banana counter or something like that, but it, it kind of made me think of that and also like some of the stuff that like Paulo Freire talks about in like Pedagogy of the Oppressed, you know, where it's like the oppressors are dehumanizing and they're like they themselves are dehumanized and then as a result of that, the oppressed become dehumanized as well. But you know, they can they can only rehumanize themselves. They're struggling against the oppressors, and so it has to be this like bottom up struggle. I think that that's like a very sharp observation of the story.
0: Well, and so in talking about the class struggle and how that's the necessary process of rehumanizing both the servants and even the master, what we talked about is that uh, your idea was that we are two salt shakers (laughs) in the castle. So we are amongst the servants that have been transfigured into the inanimate objects. Salt shakers is appropriate. So how do we go about starting an organizing campaign in this castle? Like if we're gonna begin and think through like not just our own liberation, but the liberation of all of our fellow servants, what what's our first step?
1: First and foremost, we need to get a a more detailed picture of who all the players are among us, who else is in the castle with us, and come up with a with an outreach and engagement strategy for that. You know, because almost everybody in the castle like wants to be rehumanized again. Belle is already human. She is dehumanized by Gaston who only wants to like objectify her. I think she to an extent is seeking that as well. But yeah, and then you have Lumiere again who's, you know, a social leader. So like despite the fact that like the the beast gives them orders and says, you know, like Belle has to stay locked up in her room or whatever, he defies those orders and he goes and he organizes everybody in the castle to like provide her with food and song and entertainment, which are all, like, very, uh very human things. So you have that. Then you have Cogsworth, who, like, he plays along with it sometimes, but also, like, when they get busted, like, right off the bat, Cogsworth is like, I had absolutely nothing to do with this. This was all, like, this is all everybody else. And so he kind of, like, throws people under the bus to the beast. So you have to be mindful of that, that he'll go along with things, but he also, like, buckles under pressure if he's not going to feel, like, supported.
0: Right, and, like, my- Cogsworth only goes along with things by proximity to Lumiere, mm-hmm. the candle, the candle. Right. Well, what is that actually called? He's like a, not as He's a specific kind of candlestick. Mm-hmm. I can't remember, but Lumiere is the social leader and is able to even like get Cogsworth on board. So clearly bell and Lumiere are two of the people we want to identify as the organic leaders in this castle.
1: Yeah. And also like with bell too, like her first interaction with the beast in the castle She pulls off a negotiation. You know, he has, he has her father captured and like a typical proletarian, she has nothing to offer but herself. So that's, that's what she exchanges. She says, you can, you can have me in exchange for my father. And so she will, she will stand up to the beast and like negotiate when, when pressured. But then, you know, she also will sit down and have dinner with him. And she's also the one who's not privy to the fact that she's the one who can unbreak the spell that's another dynamic that you have to look out for is like all of the servants plus the beast all know about the spell and bell is sort of kept out of that loop as well. So there's, there's that dynamic that you got to watch out for too.
0: As you were talking, I just remembered the song that you mentioned that Lumiere is the lead of, of be our guest. And a lot of the lyrics of that, this is just kind of a tangent from what we're talking about with initiating the campaign. But the lyrics of that song are all just this like, We are servants by virtue of birth, you know, like our, our lot in life is to, is to please everybody else. Mm -hmm. And this is what we were born to do. We want to become human so that we can actually be better servants again. It's a very interesting kind of like, I don't know, almost like a caste system mentality that they have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, like this is our lot. We belong at the bottom rung of society and we want our master to be a prince again because that'll create the social harmony. So I think there's a lot of ideological work that even with Lumiere we would have to do. So how would we go about doing that?
1: I mean one-on-ones obviously. I would think that Lumiere would be someone that we need to you know to sit down and figure out, you know, what's going to draw him in. And I think even even with Belle, she has that kind of like leadership sort of quality where maybe she's not like on board 100% with like the the ideological struggle against the boss or or whatever, like she will struggle when it suits her interests and like she might not. But yeah, I, I would say that Lumiere is probably, you know, being the social leader, he's he's probably the first one that we need to talk to. He's probably the most social, the most engaged with the other people in the castle.
0: Yeah, I think that's right on. And we had talked about with this particular kind of campaign, what we were hoping to discuss is, as salt shakers in this castle, we're not satisfied with just Getting the beast to be a little friendlier, a little nicer to us, even helping him find true love. Obviously, we need him to do that, but shit's got to stop, and like we got to be more confrontational. Right. So what what's the kind of campaign going to look like? Like, what is an escalation plan that's viable for us, salt shakers, and the rest of our servants?
1: You'll notice throughout, like the movie, that he completely relies on the servants to arrange all of his engagements with Belle you know everything from perming his fur to preparing the food and dressing him that's all on the servants they're even like coaching him with what to say and how to say it and trying to manage his the tone of his voice you know so i think he he does realize a little bit how how dependent he is on them to you know to create the ambiance and help him manage his temper and, and everything the ability of the servants to like Withhold that labor, or to like disrupt that somehow, I think like gives them a lot of a lot of leverage
0: with direct action approaches to organizing. You know, there's going to be a lot of fear and uncertainty. So, what do you think? Like Mumir even or Cogsworth, Miss Potts. I think you're better with the character names than me. I don't know anybody else
1: besides that.
0: <laughs> what are their objections going to be? Like, where are they going to be doubtful and uncertain in a, that you can anticipate?
1: I mean, they're kind of walking on eggshells for a lot of it, you know, because. You want to walk that sort of like middle ground because they don't want to they don't want to piss Belle off and they don't want to piss the beast off. That seems to be a lot of Cogsworth's reservations with a lot of it is he's like you know we we can't show her like the West Wing because you know the the master will freak out or even even when they give her uh, that first dinner the be our guest scene as soon as Lumiere says like. Yeah, we'll give her a little dinner. And then he like mentions music or whatever. And then Cogsworth just like, you know, freaks out. He's like, no music. But yeah, so I think like, like pissing off the beast is, is kind of their big concern. That would kind of be my counterplay is was to say, well, you know, he gets like, he gets pissed off no matter what. If we're not kind of like offering him this ultimatum where it's like, look, you have to comply with this or because either way, we're helping you manage this so that we can all get out of this together just as you have the ability to fuck this up for all of us, like we have that ability too.
0: Well, I think the other thing that we could highlight when we talk to our fellow servants is that we don't have time on our side anymore. I mean, Mm -hmm. the implication is that they've been these like inanimate objects for hundreds of years or something. It's been a long, long curse, but those rose petals on the little shrine are starting to fall off one by one and time is no longer on our side. So we got to like actually move fast.
1: Yeah, and exactly. Yeah, by maintaining the status quo, the pedals keep falling.
0: What do you think like our goals should be? Clearly we have to get to a point where we can break the curse, all become human again, but then we're still servants under this lord, under this prince, and that's still a very hierarchical experience and an oppressive one. So like what does life, like what are the goals? Like is life just going to look like that? scenario after we win on this direct action campaign or are we going to keep fighting for more
1: yeah i mean i think i don't know maybe there's like a like a, a business unionism like allegory in there too you know because i think they put a lot of their they put all of their stock in bell and then as soon as they all go go to being human then bell marries the beast and so then things go back so having direct collective action where bell is like part of the picture but not like we're not putting all of our stock in just like one you know whether it's bell or lumiere or whoever we can't let our leaders get co-opted because rehumanizing ourselves is like part of the escalation plan and we can't let we can't let you know one concession terror campaign
0: right and this this castle is huge there's clearly space for all of us to live comfortably here should we, let our, should we allow ourselves to be resigned to this having to be servile to a to a master forever i wonder what even that could look like cuz it sounds almost like like you're saying like it could reproduce like a sort of business unionism where our leadership just gets absorbed into the status quo and becomes more of like a conciliatory mediator between the forces well how would we make sure that we're fighting both the master and the potential boss and prevent that dynamic from playing out? Like, what would have to happen after we become human again to prevent Bell? Like, it sounds like now we got two targets, the beast, now prince, and Bell. And like, what is the pressure that can be applied in that scenario?
1: Even once the spell is broken and you know, and people are human again, I think, like we talk about, there's a, I want to say it's maybe in the, the direct unionism paper, but there's the distinction between emotional pressure and economic pressure. People, even within that, you know, hierarchical structure in the castle, you know, I still think that, you know, because the prince slash former beast is is like the main landed royalty or whatever. So I would say that he's probably a little higher up the the chain. You know, I think probably Belle, given her background and the fact that she, you know, she lived amongst the servants, she might be a little bit more susceptible to emotional pressure, at least as a start an escalation campaign that might be kind of the first target would be you know keeping the pressure on Belle and also because you know she knows how to uh, negotiate with the Beast
0: yeah and she probably would want to maintain some independence too even in that relationship because you know Belle's not like some like, conventional figure right? right she wants to escape this small town apparently she loves Paris mm-hmm. so if the Beast is going to be like acting like hey you're supposed to stay home and do the dishes and like make me dinner that's probably going to be a source of her discontent too. So maybe we can pay attention. Like I'm actually interested, I haven't ever heard this breakdown between emotional pressure and economic pressure. Maybe you can elaborate on those a little bit more. Like, could you explain more? What's the difference between these two forms of pressure?
1: Yeah, emotional pressure would usually be directed at somebody who's a little lower in lifting the management structure. The way it's broken down in... I'm almost positive it's the, the first direct unionism paper, but, um, you know, they talk about how there's, you know, maybe like a, a shift supervisor or, you know, someone who's like lower level management who works with the rest of the staff on a daily basis. And so part of like, part of what management does, like from their strategy is they do that strategically because it embeds in this, the workers, like more of that sense of like, you know, family or friendship. So it, it's not just like, oh, you, you weren't able to like fulfill your task or, You know, in like a restaurant or whatever, it's like, oh, you know, you didn't like upsell enough things, or or you didn't make your sales today, or whatever. It's like you let your friend down. You know, like I'm your supervisor, I'm your friend. You know, like I was really counting on you to do this, and so bosses play off of that. But then you can flip the script as well. And so a situation right now where there's like these heat waves happening, a group of workers can can also say like, look, like it's really hot in here, we're uncomfortable, like I feel like I'm going to pass out. So flipping that. That script and using that dynamic against the the supervisor who interacts with those people as well because they might be a little bit more likely to respond to that because they have to work with those workers on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, interesting. It reminds me of you know I've worked at a number of like mom and pop shops and that was typically what you would hear is um, people would go around saying like the owner was like my second mom that's like my mom you know takes care of us a very typical sentiment. But it's interesting to imagine how you can invert that and like apply the same emotional pressure back upon the employer. And I guess that's clearly like different than economic pressure in that the economic pressure is really like, at the end of the day, your economic pressure is the ability to withdraw labor, is the strike. It seems like in this castle, salt shakers and candlesticks and all that, we have the ability to do really both. Mm -hmm. We can withdraw our labor, make the castle dysfunctional, but probably we have to maintain that emotional pressure too because we really need both forms in order to be successful.
1: Yeah, I think it's just the emotional pressure is kind of like what you start off with to try and pull those high strings. And then, you know, if, if that isn't budging, then you start doing some sort of like a slowdown or other forms of disruption to where you're, you're disrupting the actual business itself.
0: And all of those tactics are available in this castle. So, I mean, we could think about slowdowns like you're yeah. saying what would like a work to rule scenario be like here is that applicable in this world do you think
1: i mean part of what i'm thinking about too in terms of like escalation is that once we start returning because the so i watched both versions because there's the cartoon version and then there's the live action version as so well the live action version starts off with like this really huge party you know where all of the, the guests are there and so i would imagine like you know, that's what the they would want to be returning to now that they're human again, is having, you know, having more of the, you know, other royals or whoever come in.
0: Right. Yeah. And like the beast is like, he looks like David Belly yeah. or something.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I would say especially when, when that sort of uh, aspect of things starts resuming, they're going to want to have servants with like, you know, different hors d'oeuvres and things like that. People, you know, getting dropped off by their carriages or whatever at the front door. So, I mean, you could take like a really extra long time doing that, like getting people inside the castle, getting the food out to the guests, beverages, like that whole thing. You know, if you're, you know, oh, well, the, the silverware isn't quite polished yet. There's, you well, know these darn smudges just won't come out. Right. So
0: you can ruin the beast's party.
1: Exactly. So, you know, and then if the silverware is out on time and the food gets cold or a lot of food service is, it's it's very precise. There's a lot of, a lot of scientific management to it. You know, whether it's like you know, even when you're like serving or cooking or bartending, you know, you're you're doing like a million little calculations in your head because everything has to be executed in a, a certain way. And so if you take just a little bit longer to do some of those tasks, especially when you're you know, you're trying to to schmooze, you know, the the rest of the people in your class, there's a lot of potential there for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean the what you're talking about with the slowdowns, even like slight slowdowns that you can execute through work to rule they just jam up everything in the restaurant world. I had one job where I was both like a waiter and bartender, They kind of like they actually I was like waiter, bartender, busser, you know, food runner, everything. They collapsed everything into one. It was it was a lot of work. But they were very into craft beer there. They like made their own beer and they had this policy the way you're supposed to pour a beer as a bartender and if you like served it to the other waiters was you pour the beer a particular way and then you allow for a 20 second pour because a 20 second pour as like the head on the beer was like just perfect at that level. It has to be like a half inch 20 second pour. But if you were going to pour, if you were realistically going to take that much time, I, that 20 second time like added onto the pour itself. So realistically, what they were trying to say in the handbook was every beer takes practically a minute to pour before it gets to the table. Mm -hmm. If you were to do that during a rush hour and like just slow down, like work to the rules and slow down all these beers and not do it as actually as fast as you have to. I mean, the drinks would get behind, then the appetizers would get behind entrees. like everything would just fall apart from there. It was just like by pouring beer. So I anticipate those ways that this can happen here too.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially, I mean, if, if this were happening in, you know, more like contemporary times, like, I've been a, a serve safe food safety instructor, you know, and it's like, you're supposed to really like wash your hands after doing pretty much anything. And the, the entire hand washing process takes a minute to a minute and a half. So if you handle cash, you're supposed to wash your hands afterwards. So, you know, when somebody gives you, somebody hands you a tip or when they give you, you know, whatever, a $50 bill to make change for their, their tab, you know, you're supposed to make that change, give them their change back and then go wash your hands for a minute and a half before you do anything else. So. I mean, just incorporating hand washing if the people were actually doing that when they were supposed to, that would drive the whole place to a halt.
0: Well, and and like you were saying before, the emotional pressure is there too, because in addition to doing all these tasks, like multitasking, doing a million things, everybody wants a ranch every (laughs) time you go to their damn table. So you got to make sure you get five ranches. You also have to create an emotionally pleasant environment. You're you're expected to perform this kind of emotional labor, get to know you. And that's the same with this castle. Like, not only is it about, like, actually reproducing them and giving them their food and all that, but you have to make them happy at the same time. So, realistically, those are all of our tools.
1: Yeah, and that was, I mean, that was where the term emotional labor first came from was flight attendants, you know, so having to, one, having to manage your own emotions and not, you know, give this, like, you know, this illusion that you're always happy all the time, no matter how poorly people treat you, and then also to manage The emotions of the guests too, to make sure that they're happy and smiling all the time.
0: Yeah, one of my uh, my friends that introduced me to like the IWW and got me into the union. He used to love to tell this story about an emotional labor strike, I guess so to speak, that these flight attendants had executed. I think it was like in the nineties. And what they did was they just decided to, you know, obviously work, do their job properly and everything, but they performed it with absolutely no emotional labor, meaning like they didn't smile. They didn't like act all pleasant to people. They were just like stoic, stone-faced. And apparently, you know, according to him, he was a good storyteller. So sometimes I wonder if he was (laughs) telling the complete truth. But it was very effective because it was really jarring. All the clients were like completely unnerved by just this very stoic, non-emotive kind of performance of the flight attendants that they were anticipating, you know, catering, you know, people being, becking on you and also like, Giving you a smile and a nice time and a nice little chat.
1: I mean, those are the expectations that, you know, people just have across the board. They'll be like, oh, why aren't you smiling more? Or like, you know, oh, you were really short there, you know, when you were addressing me or or whatever. It's like your job is much more than just bringing somebody their, you know, their steak or their hamburger or whatever you know, they expect you to put on a whole song and dance for them, like the Be Our Guest song.
0: Exactly. They expect you <laughs> They expect you to put on a magical song right. and <laughs> like be able to whip out the plates and all that. Yeah. yeah. And also today, the pressure is on like hospitality workers, food service workers, is that you, if you don't perform this emotional labor and also execute the job in addition to that, you get these like negative reviews. I, I, that was one of the ones I got when I was actually working sick obviously you're not supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. But I had like flu like symptoms, but was still working, couldn't take off, had like a full bar. And this person wanted my attention. And I, I must've just been not enthusiastic to greet them. And I think I actually told them like, hold on one second before actually addressing them. And they were so offended Mm -hmm. that I just told them to hold on for one second. And they said, you know, you should say please, or you should say something like that. And I just didn't. And they like walked out in a huff. And then the next morning I woke up to this like fucking page long review on Yelp about me specifically and how terrible of a person I was and all this. And it's just, you know, it didn't go anywhere, fortunately. But yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> like just yeah. like people are incredibly sensitive, uh, these
1: customers. Yeah, and they'll you know, they'll they'll cause a fuss over that stuff for sure. But yeah, I think especially like how it pertains to the story of Beauty and the Beast, if you're doing that sort of thing to like, you know, the nobility around them, you know, they're not gonna go on like Yelp or whatever. They're gonna go, you know, right to the the prince and just be like, Oh, hey, you're your butlers or whatever. They're being shitty, they're not smiling or they're smiling too much or um and then he's he's gonna get an earful from from them too. And then he's got you know, in addition to all that he's got his uh you know, reputation or
0: whatever. Yeah, but at the same time, like you had pointed out earlier, we really got the beast in a bind because he's super reliant on our labor, but also reliant on us to help him not only humanize us, but humanize himself. Uh, And that rose petal is dying Mm -hmm. (laughs) day by day. Yeah. So the clock is ticking. I think, you know, we should probably come to a close here, but like, what do you think are kind of the key lessons of organizing in Beauty and the Beast? Like, what are the things that stand out the most that we should think about and that maybe are germane to hospitality and food service workers today?
1: I mean, just a general organizing lesson, you know, I think the end of the story, you know, where like the one of the main leaders gets pulled up into the, the management structure and then once they kind of, once they become like somewhat humanized again, everything kind of goes back to normal. I think that's like a, a really huge lesson is to, is to be mindful that, Bosses will, or whoever will, will give some sort of concession to to really kill your campaign.
0: Yeah, so organizing has to be constant.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly,
0: the goalposts keep extending further because you actually want to keep escalating upon previous victories, mm-hmm. not be complacent and satisfied with them.
1: Yeah, and um, you know, relying on you know one leader to be your main person, I think, is also like something that that we need to watch out for as well. There needs to be member development and like important, you know, as as you build out your committee it needs to be an active committee where we're, we're trying to move Cogsworth from being like a, a, a two to a, a one, right? Like someone who's maybe like, you know, ideologically supportive to like an active supporter. You know, we want, we want Cogsworth to be doing one-on-ones or, you know, helping us like, you know, gather information or, or something like that.
0: Yeah. Well, I do think that, you know, as salt shakers, we've probably identified clearly the leaders in this. This one is a little bit you know, you see somebody performing so much leadership. Uh, You don't, it doesn't take long in beauty and the beast, but often your leaders don't look so visibly like leaders. You know, you Mm got to be more careful about that. A lot of times your leaders are people that maybe they're more quiet, but when they speak, everybody else listens. You know, maybe they're the ones that get turned to for teaching you how to like properly hold that plate tray. You know, when you're running food for your customers, leaders come in all types. Right. And, They're not super easy to identify just by, you know, who's like being the most vocal and the most active.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: With that, I think, you know, this has been a pretty fun conversation. I love the idea of these fictional workplaces, particularly ones that like allow me to remember my years doing restaurant work and all the bitterness that I still embody there. (laughs) You know, I'm going to, I'm going to harbor these grudges forever against all of the asshole bosses I had. But Really like to thank you for bringing this idea forward and joining us on Labor Wave Radio.
1: Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me.